Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are talking to a visionary. Is it because he saw things before anyone else? No, not necessarily. Is it because he's a great innovator, creating complex and scientifically driven products? Definitely not. But he is an innovator. His vision comes from being able to see the potential that lies in a piece of land. He can also see what once was with clarity that is crucial to go back to that time. His innovations come from a simple philosophy that works more often than not. Less is more. Today we are going to the drawing board, or the design table as it were, as we are pleased to be joined by golf course architectural legend Tom Doak here on the range. Tom, it's a real pleasure to talk with you. Thanks, Ralph. Nice to be here. We always start our talks here on the range with a very simple question. When did golf enter into your life? I think I was nine or 10 years old. I grew up, I was born in New York City, and my parents moved out to Connecticut, Stanford, Connecticut, when I was three. Then when I was like about nine or 10, um, a new public course opened a mile from my house, which was the only way I would have started playing golf because, you know, the country clubs were, took years to get into out there at the time and no, nobody else in my family was interested in the game at all but but having a golf course i could walk up to and play for a dollar in the afternoons <laughs> was a huge break and got me started interested in the game and i mean did did you just dive in or was it just one of those multiple pursuits that you'd follow as a kid you know i was a backyard athlete in just about every sport and the appeal of golf was not having to get five or 10 or 15 people together to play Mm -hmm. like it took for baseball or basketball or the other sports that I loved. Um, so, so that was really it. I mean, the fact, you know, I'm kind of an introvert anyway. So, so being able to go play by myself or just play with my brother or whoever we got paired up with was, uh, was great. You went to school at Cornell and essentially studied grass i mean you studied the science of growing did that grow over the years growing up playing golf or was that something that you just kind of happened upon well actually not quite true Uh, my my degree was landscape architecture which okay you know when i was a i went to mit as a freshman and figured out that the world could survive without me being an engineer because i could see i wasn't going to be able to sit in an office all day doing the kinds of things we were doing um and I'd always been interested in golf course architecture because when I was 12, 13, 15 years old, you know, the only golf my dad played was like at a convention that he went to for his business. And they started holding it at great golf resorts. So I saw Harbor Town and Pinehurst and Pebble Beach when I was a kid. And they were so different than my public golf course that, that I was excited about that and interested in you know, what made golf courses different and why some were better than others. So, 
So I always had that, you know, career idea in the back of my mind as a teenager, but nobody could tell me the first thing about how to pursue it. And it wasn't until I was a freshman in college that I thought, I really want to try this. So I started writing letters to people in the golf business. And it was Jeff Cornish, the, actually the architect who built my home course, who said, there's no real way to study what you want in school, but landscape architecture is the closest thing you can do. That you know, it teaches you about design and planning process, teaches you some of the things you you know, you, you know. Usually, a golf course is connected with other development too, whether it's housing or resort development or something else. So it really, you know, that's that degree helps me understand where those people are coming from. They're they're kind of the ones who are involved in the other side, um, but. You know, but Jeff said, you know, you'll want to take courses in agronomy and surveying and anything else you can think of that relates to what you're doing. So I did that, too. And and, uh, and at the end of the day, you learn by working for another architect. At that time, it was I mean, this was like kind of not that much different from saying I want to be an artist. And how do I become an artist? Because that's what golf course architecture was at that time. It wasn't the big business with the names that were out there the way that they are now. Right. Very different, much less visible profession than the now. Um, you know, it, it wasn't until Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer started getting noted for designing golf courses that people started paying attention to who had designed the golf course and courses started to be marketing that way instead of just, you know, here's a beautiful place and the fourth hole is really good. <laughs> um, so, so it's certainly become much more personality driven in the last 20 or 30 years than it was when, you know, in 1980 when I was in school. You took some time off and went to Scotland. And was there one thing, whether it was caddying, whether it was traveling the country, looking at court, was there one thing that really struck you in that time that kind of gave you a direction that you wanted to work towards? Yeah, my, my, my year in the UK and Ireland was actually a postgraduate award from Cornell. It was set up for somebody who couldn't study exactly what they wanted in school. And, you know, I went over there thinking... Well, I'm going to see all the famous holes and learn about these great ideas that I'll bring back to the States. And I, I certainly did some of that. And, and I saw like 170 golf courses in a year and I have a pretty good memory. So, um, you know, I did see a lot of things that I've borrowed for ideas for my courses later on. But at the end of the day, being over there for a year, what impressed me the most was just how different the culture of golf was over there. You know, how much more natural it all is. And it's, you know, they, they just treat it like outdoor recreation. It's mm -hmm. like you go play with your dog and, you know, you, you, you go, you're, you're basically going for a long walk and hitting shots in between. And, and they, you know, they don't fuss over things so much. It doesn't take as long to play. They'll play in two and a half hours. And, um, and they just, they kind of, because most of the golf courses are pretty old, they, they kind of took the terrain as they found it. You know, if there was a big hill, you had to figure out something to do with that. You could walk, just walk around it and not include it in the golf course, but you might as well hit over it and, you know, hit a blind tee shot to the other side of the fairway or, or jam a green up against the base of it or something like that and, and utilize what you had. And that really taught me a ton about golf course design. And you talk about with the landscape architecture and working with whether it's building developers or resort developers. And here was a case where the, the course was just a part of town. It wasn't some 
great foresight. It was just a golf course. Right. And it was, this was what we call, we call now a core golf course, which is, you know, there may be other stuff developed around it after, but you're not like, you know, you don't have somebody telling you to put the golf hole in this little corridor between houses on either side. Mm-hmm. How'd you come to work with Pete Dye? He's one of the people I wrote letters to starting from freshman year in college um, and, and pretty much, you know, focused on after that first year, because everyone I wrote in the golf, in the golf business in 1980 said, go work for that man. <laughs> you know, he's much more involved with building his own courses than other designers are. That's something you ought to learn to do. Uh, and he's turning out great work. So go see how he does it. So I just kept nagging him for basically three years of letters back and forth until, you know, kind of the day after my junior year of school ended, I got a phone call from Pete Dye, who I'd never talked to, saying, saying he had a project he was working on in South Carolina, and could I come down for the summer, and could I be there tomorrow? <laughs> so different. I mean, just the way that he built golf courses versus what you would experience, what, what you experience overseas. Not a bad way, it's just totally different. Right. I mean, back then, you know, Mr. Dye was so creative on how to figure out drainage and how to come up with something out of nothing that, that unfortunately, a lot of his projects, when I worked for him, were just that. They didn't give him a good site to work with because mm-hmm. they figured he didn't really need one. Uh, so, you know, I worked on, well, Long Cove at Hilton had that first project I worked on was actually a beautiful piece of land. But, you know, the TPC at Sawgrass started out as stuck. And, um, you know, the I, I worked on a public course outside of Denver called Riverdale Dunes. And that was before we built a golf course on it. It was a flood irrigated onion field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so no contour at all, just flat, gravelly soil, you know, nothing, no features to integrate into a golf course. We had to create them. Um, good training, but, but I, you know, I, I, one of the things I took away from that was, you know, it would be better if we had some features to work with. And, and, you know, and I got to see a lot of Mr. Guy's other courses and realized that the ones that most of the ones that really stood out as memorable were the good sites that he'd gotten to work with places like teeth of the dog in the Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. When I worked for Pete, that was far and away his favorite course that he'd ever done. I assume, I mean, maybe from day one, maybe before day one, but you start to conceive of a style that fits your personality, that fits what you think golf courses should be. Did you really start to hone in on, on what that would be while working with him? Not really. I mean, there was there was a day that I was working on the construction crew at Long Cove that Pete, you know, he, he's, he just started talking to me like I, I was a designer instead of a 20-year-old kid on the crew. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he said, that when he'd been, you know, we were on Hilton Head, so not far from Harbortown, which was one of the courses that catapulted him to fame. Right. And he said, you know, when he was working on that, he was living at a rental house in Palmetto Dunes. And there was a Robert Trent Jones course there that was pretty famous. And Pete said, up to that point, he had tried to emulate Jones's style more of making courses long and, and you know, a lot of, a lot of options for teeing grounds. But but big golf courses and big greens. Mm-hmm. So that, that had been the prevailing style. And he said he, he kept driving past that golf course every day while he was starting to work on Harbortown. And he thought to himself, you know, it's time for something different. 
I really got to do something different than this. And, and Harbor town was a smash hit, you know, it was a narrow golf course. It wasn't very long. It had tiny greens, but the pros went out there and they couldn't tear it up and they loved it. They loved the fact mm-hmm. that it emphasized accuracy and you had to hit good iron shots to play it well. Uh, instead of it just being bomb and gouge, like they talk about most golf courses today. Um, so, you know, what I took away from that was, you know, if, if I ever get lucky enough to design something on my, my own, I need to do something different too. I can't just take Pete's style and copy that. And, and to, you know, and honestly, you know, he had sons that were going to do that anyway. <laughs> so if I was going to compete with them, you know, I, I ought to do something different to set myself apart. Um, and, you know, at the time I'd started writing for golf magazine, someone I was in college and, and some of the pieces that I'd written had emphasized, you know, if you have a better piece of land to work with, you have a lot more chance to build something memorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, a lot of my style focused on the idea of building on good sites, you know, at the end of an era where people didn't get good sites to work with. <laughs> and just by chance, you know, when I got out on my own and, and got called about doing a course on my own, uh, it was a pretty good site for a golf course here in northern Michigan, a place called High Point outside of Traverse City. Well, I'm going to ask you about that in a second, but you had influence from Pete, but then you also found an attachment with the work of Alistair McKenzie, didn't you? Yeah, and with, I mean, honestly, with a lot of architects from the past, um, you know, I, I got around and saw so many courses when I was in my early 20s. I, I saw, I had seen like 700 golf courses mm. by the time I was 25. And, and you know, if there was, I don't think there was a list of the top 100 courses in the world then, but if there was, I'd have seen like 80 or 90 of them. You know, I, I got to, you know, I'd seen everything in the UK that anybody said was worth seeing. I'd seen most of the places in the US, uh, amazingly. Places like Pine Valley and Augusta let me come see the golf courses when I was a college student because I could write a nice letter and I sounded like I was serious about what I was doing. Which you were. Uh, <laughs> which I was. So so I really, you know, I really had all those golf courses to draw from. But, you know, Mackenzie appealed to me the most and, and partly because he was one of the few architects that wasn't a good golfer that wasn't how he got into design. Like, Pete Dye was a very good golfer. He was Indiana amateur champion, and he played in the U.S. Open two or three times. And Alice Dye was a great golfer. And, you know, most of the architects you think of from the past, not even Nicholas, but, like, you know, Harry Colt played in the British Open. And, and James Braid obviously won the Open five or six times. Um, old Tom. <laughs> old Tom Morris. And then in the States uh, – you know, Tellinghouse was a good player who played in the U.S. Open once or twice. Um, most of the – Donald Ross had played both in the Open in the U.K. and in the States when he moved over to the States. So most of those guys, that's how they got known for being – you know, there wasn't really a profession of golf course architecture in the beginning. So you went to a really good player to ask, how do we build a golf course that's good? Uh, McKenzie came at it from a completely different viewpoint. He was a doctor. Uh, his father had been a doctor. I don't think Mackenzie was actually that interested in being a doctor. As soon as he got his medical degree, he started dabbling in golf course design instead. Uh, but, you know, he came at it more from the perspective of 
uh, health and exercise and what he called pleasurable excitement, what I would call fun, Mm -hmm. you know, and he was, he was, he didn't dismiss good players. He tried to make it challenging for good players, but he also tried to do that in a way that, that the average bad player could get around the golf course and still have fun, which a lot of good players just don't worry about that much. You know, they think it's all supposed to be a test. And if you're not good, just move up far enough that you can get around it some way. But, uh, but that's, you know, that's not really the most satisfying experience for the average golfer. They would rather see some obstacles they can handle and, you know, and feel good about when they carry a bunker instead of just mm-hmm. like being so far up that it's not in play for them at all. You mentioned high point. When did you decide to go into business for yourself? When did you decide I'm going to do this on my own? Uh, well, at the time I worked for P he had two sons that were just getting into the business. Right. So he was taking most of the calls and, and referring them to the boys instead. And I wound up working for Perry guy, his older son in Denver for like two or three years. Okay. And Perry loved me because I was one of the only guys that he had who really spent time with his dad. You know, I like, I'd worked on the initial plans for the stadium course at PGA West and Pete had spent like two or three days sitting me down and telling me everything he wanted in that golf course. So Perry accepted that I, you know, I kind of understood what his dad was thinking and try to sort out where the holes fit best. Um, but, you know, Perry started getting jobs overseas, like blowing down the sides of mountains in Japan to build golf courses. And, you know, I wasn't sure where my career was going to go, but I didn't think that was the direction mm-hmm. for him. You know, I, I mean, everything I'd seen was leaning the other way toward finding really good land to build on. So I quit working for Perry without any idea of how I was going to start designing jobs on my own. You know, I went back to traveling around. I was still writing for Golf Magazine part-time. I was traveling around a little bit to get back to some places that I'd seen before. And I just stumbled into a job of my own. I came up to Michigan to, to get back to Crystal Downs, and which I'd seen while I was in college on a nasty day with the golf course in bad shape and I wanted to come back here and see it in good shape so I spent a few days with the pro hanging out and playing the golf course and like two weeks later one of his friends called him and said he knew somebody in Traverse City that wanted to develop a golf course and you know they weren't going to hire Jack Nicholas or a big name guy and Mm -hmm. he didn't want him to hire the same guys that built everything else up here and did Fred have any ideas and Fred was like yeah he was just here and so I just walked into a job, a design job on my own at 26. And what were you walking into? Well, I was walking into a really good piece of land. And my one sales point that really resonated with the client was not, I can design you a cool golf course, but I can build this golf course for you. And I know, you know and here's how much it's going to cost because I had that experience working for the guys being out in construction you know i'd actually got it took me a while with my sort of ivy league degree background to let them to get them to let me get on a bulldozer and shape a green Mm -hmm. but you know i'd seen enough of pete's work to know that's where you had an influence on the final product so eventually i kind of convinced perry i needed to do that part too and i got not great at it, but good enough that I was confident I could go build a course on my own. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what I did at High Point. 
you know, I, I had a, I had a golf course superintendent who, you know, who'd been in the business for a long time and an irrigation installer who was a friend of mine who'd been in the business for a while. But other than that, there wasn't anybody who'd built a golf course before. And, uh, you know, it was really interesting to sort out, you know, getting it all done on my own. Uh, great learning experience. When you look at a raw property and you see potential, I can only equate it to being like a teacher or a coach who knows that they have something special. They develop a student or an athlete and you try to bring out the best in them. Uh, just like you try to bring out the best in the properties you view it. So with that said, it has to be crushing to see a project close and disappear forever. Like happen at high point. Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's a good analogy you you bring up, I've never heard that one before. People are always trying to compare golf course architecture to fine art, and it's not really fine art. We still we have to design for people to play, mm-hmm. and we have and we have a client who's you know who has an idea of what he wants that we have to respond to too. So it's not like we just go out and paint something on our own and say there there it is. Um, it's it's much more involved than that because it's much more expensive than that mm-hmm. and so you you need somebody's backing you from the beginning um you know high point closing was really sad for me it probably would have been crushing if if i hadn't gotten to the point in my career where i built several other really great right sites um so you know i had other really good courses to fall back on and you know it was open for 20 years and i got to play it a lot and and see the good and bad in what I did. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I wish it were still there. In fact, you know, most of the back nine of it was not torn up. You know, the front nine has been converted into a hops farm. Right. Most of the back nines, they still haven't really torn up at all. It kind of looks like it did when I started. There's okay. no grass anymore. <laughs> it's been abandoned for 10 years. But the land is still there. The contours mm-hmm. are still there. You know, it might be my retirement project to bring back the back nine at high point. If the, if the landowner will let me do it. In this day and age, I mean, a nine-hole course fits right in with, with where the game is going. I think so. Yeah, I, I really do. And, you know, there's enough. Traverse City is a tourism mecca now. It, mm-hmm. it kind of was when we started, but it is even more. You know, I, I think there's there might be a niche for that thing to exist. And, uh, you know, and that's where... I won't say all of the best stuff was, but that was the most dramatic part of the property for golf. There was some really cool stuff back there. So, so you know, whether, whether it happens or not, I mean, I still love the, the work I did out there. It exists for me. It, you know, it's a shame it doesn't exist for other people to go enjoy. We've had Tom Coyne on the show a couple of times, and his latest journey across the States opened his eyes to really the quality of golf that exists that was so different place to place. That said, he kind of said, and I think you probably agree that the best golf really rises out of the sand, doesn't it? Usually, yes. I mean, I've built two or three courses. Two or three of my best courses are not on sand. Cape Kidnappers in New Zealand is not a sandy side on the cliff tops. The mm-hmm. soil is some weird volcanic soil that I've never seen anywhere else. <laughs> But it's good. it looks like sand until you pour water on it, and then it looks like a sponge. It's very, it's very strange. Um, Rock Creek in Montana was like topsoil and giant granite boulders, <laughs> uh, and it, you know, it took a lot of patience and a fair amount more money to build that. 
And that's, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the real advantage of sand is it's, it's a less expensive to build a golf course. A, you don't have many drainage concerns. B, because you don't have many drainage concerns, you don't have construction delays. You know, rainy weather is fine. Right. Uh, it doesn't slow you down. Um, and C, you don't bring it, need to bring in materials for the bunkers or the greens. You've got sand on site, and that's what we've built greens and greens out of these days. So presumably you can use the native materials for most of that stuff, and the construction is just much simpler at that point. Is it that simplicity that ultimately lends itself to being maybe a better course is you're able to just think a little bit more because you don't have to worry about the other issues? Exactly. I mean, and you know, I mean, one of the analogies I've used for working in sand is like, you know, for years people like wrote stuff from papers and magazines, but then it went off to a typesetter and you could never visualize what that was going to look like in its final product. Mm-hmm. And then the desktop computer came along and what you saw on the screen was exactly how it was going to look on the page. Right. That's what working in sand is for building a golf course. When you're working in clay soils, you know, you build a bunker, but you get the floor of the bunker and then you have to put drainage, a drainage layer underneath it. And, mm-hmm. uh, liner to keep the silt from washing into it and you know bunker sand so that you know it's not it you have to build it way deeper than the finished product right you can't just stand down in there and and say okay you know i want this bunker a little deeper to make make it harder to get an eight iron over the lip in sand you can just go right down in there and start hitting shots if you want to (laughs) to see how the thing plays right i mean that's it's tremendously different and that is, the, I mean, the one thing that you cannot do when you're building a golf course is you can't quite play test it. You know, like you can hit drives and see where the ball lands, but you don't have grass, so you don't see it roll out and see where it winds up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but sand, you're a lot closer to that. You can hit more shots and get a sense of what you're doing if, if you need to. You know, at some point you have enough experience that you don't really, you know, you're only doing that because it's fun. <laughs> That's still a good reason to do it, though. <laughs> You've been described as a minimalist, so while it may not be your word, what does it mean? Or does it just tie back into what we're talking about, that it's you want to do things the right way so you can focus on the right things? Yeah, I mean, part of it's that, trying to keep things simple and do the important things. And, you know, part of it's what I went back to that I learned in the UK. It's just... When you have good features to work with, build everything around that and don't, you know, don't insert too many of your own ideas. You know, if I've got, if I've got an idea for a great par five that I want to build somewhere someday, I'm going to save that for a boring piece of land where I don't have anything else to work with. But I'm not going to try to make it fit on a piece of land, on a good piece of land that I'm working on now, unless I just see the exact right spot for it. I have on occasion been on a hike or a trail walk and for lack of a better description, I, I see golf holes. Like I can see how it sets up. Is that what it's like when you go onto a site as you're looking for, maybe it's just one or two holes. And then as you say, you build around those things. Yes and no. I mean, the, the one tricky part of that is pretty much everyone I've ever met when they, when they're out on a raw piece of land and they think they see a golf hole, Mm -hmm. it's smaller than they think it is. 
you think you're looking at a 400 yard par four and it's only 280 yards. Uh, <laughs> okay. You know, you're just not used because you don't have anything out there for scale. You know, sure. if it was near the right width for a golf hole and there was a flag down at the other end, you'd have a better idea. But in raw land, you just don't know. Right. So, so it's a combination of going out and looking for things on the ground, but also playing around with a map and seeing how far it is. And some, sometimes you find a hole on a map and go see if that looks as good as you think it's going to. And then when you get out there, you'll see other things that you that didn't stand out on the map. And you go back to the map and see, okay, how does that fit with these other things that I was trying to put together? Is it is it too close to the last, you know, is it too close to another fairway? Or can I fit that in? And can I make this thing connect together a different way to include that, that hole that I just saw? Sometimes it's in making those decisions that you come up with would be described as a controversial hole when in reality you created it because that's that's what the land afforded. Yep. That's or or that's what you needed to do to fit everything together. Yeah. I want to talk about Bandon Dunes. When did you make your first visit there? I had heard about Mike Kaiser buying the property in Bandon like long before the first golf course was built. Like mm-hmm. 1995, so five years before the resort opened, mm-hmm. and you know, I'd seen he he built a nine-hole course in Southwest Michigan that I mm-hmm. stopped through to see right after it opened, and I was pretty impressed with it. It was very different than you know, Dick Nugent was the designer, but it was very different than any Dick Nugent course I'd seen. So I figured some of that was Mr. Kaiser's input, mm-hmm. um, and then a couple of people that were mutual acquaintances told me that. He, he was buying this land in Oregon to build something. And I said, please put me in touch with it. So <laughs> but I asked if it was okay to go out and have a look at the land in Oregon when I was on the West Coast the next time. And he said, sure. Gave me the property caretaker's information. So so we kind of walked around the property for abandoned dunes at that point. Most of it was 10 foot high with gorse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you, you know, you'd get right out to the cliff tops and see how dramatic that part of the golf course was going to be. Right. Um, and, you know, so I just spent the next couple of years trying to get to know Mike a little bit and hopefully setting myself up to be first in line for the second golf course. He'd already pretty much committed to David Kidd to do his first golf course. When you set to design Civic Dunes, were you looking to create a course to complement kids' design to, did you want to overshadow it? Or were you just looking to build a great golf course that that stood on its own? Well, at the end of the day, you've got to build a golf course, you know, your decisions are based on your property and not the course next door. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... You know, we we wanted to try to make as many contrasts between our course and the first course as we could. You know, mm-hmm. how do we how do we make it feel different? And just you know, you know, Bandon Dunes was so well received. The only politically correct thing I could say was, you know, I'm trying to make it just as good as the first golf course. Um, but really, I'm trying to make it the best the best course that I can on this piece of ground. And I really did think that I'd stumbled into the better of the two pieces of ground. Mm-hmm. Mr. Kaiser hadn't owned the land for Pacific Dunes when David started. So he didn't have a chance to go over in the dunes at the start and finish of the golf course and use that part. And right. I really thought that made the land for Pacific that much better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, so we looked at what to do differently, you know, bunker style, different 
make the greens smaller generally, you know, a variety, not all small greens, but some small greens, some bigger greens, mm -hmm. but most abandoned dunes greens have been pretty big. Um, uh, shorter overall, abandoned dunes was like 7,200 yards. And I said to Mike, I don't see why you'd need two courses like that for a golf resort. You know, if you, if you ever have a big tournament, you've already got the course that can handle that. So, you know, so I, you know, unless you tell me otherwise, I'm just going to make mine a little shorter and not worry about trying to get it to 7,000 yards. Uh, and ultimately, I think that's one of the people, reasons people like it more. You know, when you build a course 7,200 yards, you're really building for not even for scratch players and club pros, but like better, you know, right. plus three guys and tour pros. And, you know, when the wind blows in Bandon, you put a club pro on the back tees at 7,000 yards and they're going to struggle to break 80 and they're not going to have a lot of fun doing mm -hmm. that. Uh, and certainly the average player has no business playing them anywhere near that long. But, but if, you know, if you build the tees at 7,000 yards, then the average guy thinks he should play it at 6,600. If you only have the back tees at 6,600, then the average guy will play it more like 6,200 and that's where he should be. Mm -hmm. I never thought of it this way, but because of everything you've told me here, that, that was the Pete Dye influence, if you ask me. Is, is you looking at this is what this course was, we we want something different. And that means it, it can be shorter and more playable. Yeah, absolutely. As you're working on it, as you're working on that site, do you look over to the east and say, ah, that's, that's an interesting piece of property there? Or was it simply coincidental that you would then later build Old McDonald right next door? Uh, absolutely coincidental. In fact... In fact, when we were working on the routing for, for Pacific Dunes, there was a piece of ground that I thought was just going to be, you know, we didn't have room for 18 holes in the most dramatic part of the ground. And, you know, I mean, certain, the two most dramatic parts were the coastline and those inland dunes where the first couple of holes are, and then mm -hmm. seven and eight come back through and 16 comes back through. Those are really special special dunes but then there's you know there's some kind of flatter ground where the third hole and the 12th hole are and i was going to have to put two or three more holes further inland from those on flat ground and i said to mike you know i like everything else but it seems like these holes are going to be pretty flat and he said well i own the ground past this this property line too why don't you go look at that and that's where the 13th hole came from. <laughs> it was just over the line and off my map. And as soon as I got over there and looked, looked at it, I was like, yes, I'll take this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like 13 and 14 and part of 15 were, were added to my property. Mm -hmm. The funny thing is those, those holes that, that I didn't want to build, that's part of old McDonald's now. That would be like about... That would be part of number six and 10 mm -hmm. and four and five at old McDonald. Okay. Which turned out to be pretty good holes. But at the time I was just like, no, they're not going to be as exciting as Pacific Dunes. Obviously when you built them as old McDonald, you were in a different space in terms of what you were trying to create. Yeah. Old McDonald was a really different project because, you know, to do the McDonald's style, you have, you have certain templates in mind and you're looking for where do, where does this particular idea fit on this property instead of, well, there's a cool tune ridge. What would I do with that? Mm -hmm. 
as courses mature, they change and you've been called in for a lot of renovation work or restoration work, I should say. What do you think are the two biggest issues with maturing golf courses here in the States that if somebody's looking to restore, what typically are the issues that most come up? On Parkland golf courses like back east and Midwest as well, uh, tree growth is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they weren't built without most of them weren't built without trees, but you know the trees have changed drastically over the last ninety or a hundred years. Uh, you know, some of them were built with elms between the fairways, and when the elms started dying off, they planted like three maple trees around where the elm used to be. And uh, you know, an elm is like a you know, it, it grows up and kind of arches out and you can hit shots underneath the branches. Mm-hmm. A maple tree is low to the ground, thick, <laughs> and you can't, you know, and, and the maple tree was planted closer to the fairway than the elm used to be. So the, some of the holes got way narrower and, you know, where you used to try to play out to the right side of the fairway to get at a left-hand pin placement, there's a tree in the way. Now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Taking mature trees down at a, at a country club is a pretty controversial thing. And when I started doing that kind of work 30 years ago, there was a lot of resistance to doing it. Sure. Uh, it seems like that resistance has gotten less and less over time because people have seen how many, how many courses have been restored and kind of opened up and how many more options it gives you for playing. And, mm-hmm. and it can be prettier. You know, you're, you're trying to leave the best of the trees, but you know, thin everything out enough that you can actually see them and, you know, have the ones that you want as features instead of just a wall of trees that nobody really thought about when they planted it. There's a course near me. I had been a member there for a short time where they had done an extensive ground renovation and turf reduction mm-hmm. because it's Southern California and, you know, the less turf you have, the better off you're going to be. But they didn't do anything about the oaks. And, and of course in, in California, you kind of don't touch oaks, but it made it so that there were holes where you were almost hitting down a tunnel, that there was a roof over the fairway that you had to hit shots. You couldn't hit ground balls because you still had to carry things, but you had to hit shots of these little bullets. Otherwise (laughs) the course was going to eat you alive. I saw a hole like that in Chile once. It's just the trees literally were like over the top and, and together mm-hmm. on a long par three, and you just had to hit a ground ball in order to play the hole. <laughs> it made it so it wasn't fun. Let's put it that way. Um, what are you working on now? Um, well, during the pandemic, a lot of our things shut down. The only thing that we were that we had about eighty percent done, and we we managed to get finished with some delays is a course in the northwest of Ireland called St. Patrick's, mm-hmm. something that I'd been trying to convince the client to build for, like, more than 10 years. Okay. And and finally, like, help them, like, put together the investors to do the project. So, you know, so after all that effort, we got about three-quarters of the way through, and then the pandemic hit, and we weren't allowed to work for a while. It's, it's been uh, excruciatingly slow to get it finished, and obviously Americans still have some issues getting over there to see it right now. But we built a house. It's a beautiful golf course on just a gorgeous piece of ground. So, so I had more than 300 acres to work with to try to use all the best features of that for one really good golf course. And it is... You know, I think it's one of my best courses and, 
especially in terms of just the contours in the fairways are just like you get every kind of lie and stance and and different way of playing you know like like holes where you have to try to hit a draw to use a slope to get more length um just you know you get to use the contours in so many different ways i think people are going to really like the golf course um and then now i'm actually working on a course for the Kaisers in Wisconsin next to their Sand Valley Resort. That's mm-hmm. a, um, that's a, we call it a restoration of the Lido course, but the Lido was this McDonald course on Long Island that disappeared 75 years ago. And we are trying to build an exact copy of that a thousand miles away in, in Wisconsin on mm-hmm. a fairly flat sandy site. And you know, there, there's certainly some people who would say, well, that's totally, the, you know, that's the dead opposite of everything you just told us about minimalism. And, you know, in some respects it is, but the Lido was not built, the Lido was built out of a dead flat swampy site. The, the original course mm-hmm. was built out of a dead flat swampy site. So essentially we're trying to do the same thing that McDonald did a hundred years ago in a different place. Um, you know, it's kind of a fascinating project because Lido was, that was the only course that McDonald built like that, where he just, you know, total freedom to create what he wanted. And he had a few ideas that he'd seen in his travels in the UK, and he'd never found a good place to build that hole before. Mm-hmm. So he pulled those out of the drawer and said, okay, I'm going to build this <laughs> hole at Lido that, that is, a, is a par five, but you can take a shortcut to a, to a little island of fairway to try to play it directly to the green and cut off 60 yards. Um, and they, they ran a competition in one of the UK magazines to design an ideal finishing hole for this golf course. The competition was won by this doctor that nobody knew much about at the time, Alistair McKenzie, (laughs) this perfect finishing hole. And they, McDonald actually like toned it down a little bit. McKenzie's, McKenzie's original design had like four or five alternate fairways to choose from. McDonald toned it down to three. <laughs> um, Tom Simpson, the, the, the British architect, submitted an entry to the competition as well. They used his idea for the 15th hole at the Lido. So even though we're building a quote-unquote McDonald course, we're building like several halls that McDonald never built anywhere else. Um, and it's been really cool to see those come out of the ground. The idea of the Lido, I mean, that was kind of thrown out with old mcdonald it was that was an inspiration so i mean it's this is something you've been thinking about then for what 15 years yeah yeah and i you know i i i'd read about the lido you know in college and and i i first seen the seen a good aerial photo of it like 30 years ago in the nassau county planning department when i was when i was trying to find what garden city looked like as far back as i could mm-hmm. they pulled out a big aerial photo the oldest aerial photo of Nassau County from 1926. And all of, you know, not Garden City, but all of those other courses like the Creek and Piping Rock and Lido were almost brand new when this photo was taken and a really sharp version of what they looked like at the time. So that's been, you know, that photo is a huge help on trying to get things right. But, you know, we've used every photo that was ever taken of the golf course that we can find. Uh, Actually, you know, I, I have to give a lot of credit to our consultant on the thing. It was a guy named Peter Flory who just, you know, 
he's a bank consultant, but he made his side project trying to do a replica version of the Lido. And he studied all these photos and whatever LIDAR information he could come up with and everything else to get a pretty good video game version of it on his computer. And then, you know, we found a kid who could take the video game and kind of pull out data points and turn that into a topo map of what we were trying to build. Okay. So, so that's, that's the base that we work with. You know, when I, when I actually start shaping greens, I've got some version of the 14th green at the Lido already there to start with. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty close. And it, and at that point it does become a restoration. You just, you know, just like an older course, somebody might've messed with the green over time or changed it. You know, I'm looking at all these photos, trying to figure out, okay, how is this different from what's in these photos? And we're editing, you know, the, the computer version of the golf course to get a final product. Well, and you've made a career of following your instincts and the land. Here, you're following someone else's plan entirely. How how tough is that for you to kind of, whoa, whoa, I got to turn myself off here because this is the way it's supposed to be? Well, that's, I mean, I, I've, I've had to turn myself off on consulting for 30 years. You know, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm rebuilding... George Thomas's course at Bel Air. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to think about what I would do with this hole. It's what did he do with this hole? Right. And you know, is there is there really anything wrong with restoring that just the way he did? You know, that's always the first consideration at working on an older golf course. Why mess with the original design? You know, presumably we're here because everybody really liked that. And sometimes, you know, the they built a new road and it's just too close to the fairway and you've got to change the hole and shift it over or, or make the, you know, you used to be rewarded for playing near the out of bounds and now you just can't let people do that anymore. Right. So you've got to, you've got to change some things around, but none of that's a consideration for the Lido. We're really trying to do as precise a copy as we can with all the information that we have. We always finish up here in the range by jumping into the Wayback Machine. So usually we talk about equipment, but here we're going to veer into the course aisle. So I have two questions for you. Um, I'm sure you've been asked many times before the first, um, but is there a project that you worked on that meant a lot to you? And and, and not what's the best project, right. but it's something where either it was the site the design, how it turned out, or just that it has a special emotional connection for you that you're like, that one always makes me smile. Oh, there have been a lot. I mean, you know, I've been so lucky the last 20 years to pretty much be able to choose the projects that I want to work on. And, and the way I'm picking them is, you know, what's going to make me happy here? And, you know, what is the most interesting thing I can do right now? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily what's, you know, can I build another top 100 course out of this? That's usually an interesting proposition, but (laughs) not always. So, so, you know, I've, I've worked on a ton of beautiful sites. They were all fabulous experiences and I'm not going to pick between them, but, but on top of that, I've worked on things like we built a public course in Denver called common ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's owned by the Colorado Golf Association, and when they interviewed me, I was trying. I was really trying to convince them to just hire my associates to do the golf course because they they had they'd saved up four million dollars, and their goal was to take the four million dollars and improve the golf course as much as they could 
but they didn't, you know, that because there's the state golf association, they're not really in it to make money. It's a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to turn it into the best $40 golf course they could. They didn't want to like change it and start charging a hundred, which is rare. You know, most of our clients are capitalists. They Mm -hmm. want to charge as much as they can. You know, I tried to convince them just by my associates to do it. And they're like, no, we want you. So, so I've been kind of partners with them. I took up, I took my fee as I didn't take my fee out of the $4 million. I just took it as a royalty from then on, mm-hmm. but they've, they've done so much with that golf course. I mean, they've, they've, they've started this caddy and leadership program where mm-hmm. they, they take kids from the neighborhoods around the golf course, which is not the rich part of town. And, you know, train them up to be caddies. And then this program subsidizes the caddy fee. If you go there, the caddy's free to the golfer. You tip them. It, they get paid by the foundation okay. to actually do the caddying. So it doesn't, it costs less than a golf cart instead of more. Mm-hmm. And so people take them. And at the, at the same time, these kids are interacting with people and, you know, learning about life. They're also, if they get enough loot, Oops, and they qualify to apply for an Evans scholarship to, okay. for a college scholarship. Sure. And they've, you know, they've, they've turned out quite a few full ride college scholarships out of the neighborhood as a result of running this program beside their golf course. They also, you know, we, we, we managed to save enough, uh, enough in the budget while we were doing the golf course to like take the old sand from the greens and bunkers and, and use it to build a little part three course for kids on top of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just pretty simple, 80, hundred yard holes, but just fabulous to see like families out there and little kids out there playing by themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, and you know, obviously that feeds into, you know, developing new golfers and keeping the place busy for years to come. Finally, Alistair McKenzie famously lived alongside the sixth hole at Pasa Tiempo. And he even had his ashes scattered there. Yeah. So with that consideration, can you name a course that you would want to call home, play regularly, a place where you would essentially spend eternity? Well, I've thought about it a little bit the last few years. And, you know, strangely, you know, when I moved to Traverse City, I thought, well, you know, this won't be home for the long term. I will probably... You know, I'll probably build a project someday and think I want to live on that. And, you know, I, I actually haven't built that many courses that were connected with like housing development type thing. Mm-hmm. And the, the ones that I have are like Rock Creek in Montana, where the season conflicts with the one here in Traverse <laughs> City. So, I, you know, it's, it's a place you only go in the summer and I got some place to be in the summer. So I don't get that much. Right. Um, so I don't know that there's, you know, just like asking me to pick my one favorite golf course, there is, you know, there's too many to choose from and I've gotten to see them all and it's, that's a really hard choice. I will say, you know, one of them that most people, is not on most people's radar, one of the courses I built in Australia is uh, a little place called St. Andrews Beach, south of Melbourne, it's there's one dune there's one big sand dune be, with a bunch of homes on it between the golf course and the ocean. So it doesn't have, have the ocean views that Kid Kidnappers and Terry Eady and Barnbugle do. Mm-hmm. So it's it doesn't get nearly the publicity. Right. But I thought it was just the perfect piece of land for golf. I mean, when we shaped that, we built greens in like half a day. It's just like, okay, <laughs> just strip the topsoil off it, 
lower the back six inches and put the topsoil back on, we're done with this hole. You know, all we really had to do was dig bunkers to build the golf course. And I have loved that golf course from the time I first had the map of it to now. I don't get to get back there to play it all that much. But the last couple of times I've been there, I've rented a house by the 14th hole and stayed there for a few days. And yeah, I'd be happy with my ashes scattered on that golf course. <laughs> but, but there might be a couple others too. Sure. No, well, I'll say, I mean, when you talk about high point and the idea of, of, you know, rebuilding that, that back nine, it's like, that seems like that sort of place that it, you know, it just touches you. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Tom, you've delivered amazing courses in lands across the globe, varied terrains, climates, and clientels, but always great golf. Those of us who play are very appreciative of your work and we thank you for joining us here on the range. Thanks, Ralph. Nice to see you. That was Tom Doak, and as you can hear, he just wants to create an amazing place for us to enjoy the game of golf. It was a love of design and a calling that brought him into the industry and continues to drive him as the game becomes more popular than ever. This is another case where we could have talked for hours, and I wouldn't have run short of questions. Not by a long shot. Hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Before we go, Tom and I were just talking about eternity. And for some commentators in golf social media, there's been a lot of talk about spending an eternity on the golf course because the courses are so busy. That's a good thing. And if you're complaining about it, that says a lot about you. The game is popular. Before reserved seating was a thing, if you wanted a good spot at the movies, you got there early. If you wanted to park close at a mall or amusement park, you'd get there early. Then why are these golf insiders, experts really, not getting up and making those early tee times. Why aren't they on their game to book in advance and arrive with the sun to make sure they got around the course in a timely manner? Oh, it's not the best time. Maybe it's not convenient, but if I can play in three and a half hours and you are stuck around five, who really is playing at the best time? Or how about attacking the super twilight and finishing in the dark? It's fun on the right courses and is golf experts, it's our job to know which courses those are. The point being is that right now is a great time for golf and we want more and more players to take in the game. Things might get inconvenient, but they aren't impossible. And if you know, you know. If you really care about the game of golf and your game, you will make the small effort to get it all booked right. Or maybe you're just a bit spoiled. We've definitely seen that in recent golf Twitter. But that is a story for another day. What's new for 2021 in golf equipment? Find out with the Golf Spotlight as we are dropping new features all the time, looking at clubs, accessories, footwear, and more. Go to thegolfspotlight.com and click on the YouTube subscribe button and turn on those notifications so you never miss one of our features. There is always a lot to catch up on. Stay up to date on the range by following us on Instagram at thegolfspotlight. We're also on Twitter at golfspotlight. We welcome your comments everywhere. You've listened this far, so subscribe to The Range and Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or iHeart. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. That'll do it for this episode of The Range. So let's hit the course and let's appreciate the nature that was already there before the course ever showed up. And we'll talk to you next time right here on The Range.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com.